Like a faithful migratory bird, it's always at this time of year, as the weather chills, that I head to the hammam. Perhaps this instinct emerges from my time spent in Istanbul, where I often spent blustery afternoons at a 15th century spa in a froth of Ottoman bubbles. Now, when the seasons turn, you'll find me in one of London's Victorian-era Laconium, or the hammam attached to the Mosque de Paris. This is where those post-summer catch-ups happen and plans are hatched. This episode of Conflict Corner starts off with a look at the rituals of health and happiness and the lost practice of bathing in whey, a byproduct of cheese. We'll drop in at the London Design Festival to hear about a company donating its offcuts to artists who create beautiful, innovative designs. We'll journey to the Greek mainland, the foothills of Mount Pelion, to check into a characterful and modest hotel. We'll also debate the therapeutic value of cycling in nature, that sensory abandon of whizzing through a forest on two wheels, and the liberating essence of the bike for female riders in Africa, where our essayist, Wanjiri Gakuru, lives and cycles. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. These pillion villages flourished because they weren't taxed by the Turks. So this is why we have these very grand village meeting places and it's surrounded by lush vegetation, most probably the most vegetated place in Greece. I really like the idea of making some plant stones from a waste material because there's this contrast between waste and then nature. There's this catchphrase, I think, which is used a lot in terms of sustainability, which is to dread lightly. So I wanted to create something that, well, I thought a walking plant stand would be something that could be quite fun to make. Fallen leaves, small and spindly, dry into crunchy greyish-green spears. Colours seem to sharpen, take deeper hues here. Birds chirp and insects buzz in a soothing medley. On a bike, I am flying, joyfully taking it all in. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in the studio with me. As usual, we like to start each episode with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcella, what do you have for us this month? I'm fresh back from Milan Fashion Week, very inspired. And after all, I think the Prada show was actually my favourite one. Mucha Prada and Ralph Simons created such a modern but still stunningly elegant collection. I just love it. The show started with transparent slime flowing down from the ceiling along the catwalk. (laughs) 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 So more like a horror movie, but it was a dramatic Hitchcock kind of music set the mood. And the fashion, (laughs) sleek shift dresses in pastel hues wrapped by see-through organza, giving the look of a fluid appearance were just one eye-catcher. There were many more, but I think this was like going hand in hand with the slime. You have to see it. It sounds a little bit weird, probably. (laughs) But another eye-catcher, the kitten heel slippers in striking colors. They looked so, so fresh, and I'm sure they will set a trend next spring. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see them on the streets of London and Paris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually love a kitten heel. Gillian, 
tell us what you've been up to. Well, on a sunny morning last week, I headed to North Kensington to Labrook Hall, which is an amazing new venue in London. It used to be an Edwardian car showroom, and it's been taken over by the owners of the Carpenter's Workshop Gallery, who have lovingly restored it beautiful wooden banisters and soaring ceilings. And they are turning it into, they're investing really all their profits from their gallery into creating a creative hub, an art space, a music venue, a garden. And they really want it to be a philanthropic venture where creative communities can meet and mix and be inspired. There's going to be an amazing restaurant and they use this beautiful, beautiful building now as their London base for their gallery. And so I went to see an exhibition within this space, which was this wonderful London-based American jeweller called Jacqueline Rabin. She's a real thinker. She says she doesn't design for design's sake, but she designs because she has something to say. And her pieces have the most beautiful sort of organic shapes that are part architectural, but really an ode to materiality. Very tactile and quite seductive. And so it's not a huge exhibition, but it spans 20 years of her work of collections that all have beautiful poetic names that, you know, have layers of meaning behind them. So I can highly recommend going to the exhibition for the jewellery work. If not, you can always look at her work online. That's Jacqueline Ravelin. But a must is to go to Labrock Hall to see this renovated space. It's incredible because, I mean, it was London Design Week last week and there were a lot of interesting pop-ups and discussions about the hospitality infrastructure, this incredible sense of just innovation happening architecturally. But then also this is our cultural infrastructure being restored, which is really more exciting in some ways. Well, it's incredible in central London that a stunning building like this with such a past history existed and was there for the giving and for an art space like this. And I think London always surprises with venues like this and enough people to want to create spaces for them and for others to appreciate and get together. What about you, Sophie? I have another hall. I came back yesterday from Porchester Hall Spa, which is a kind of Turkish hammam in Westminster, just next to Bayswater, which actually has also been restored with nearly a million pounds worth of kind of amazing restoration. But it's such a wonderful venue, really eccentric, very local, lots of women chatting in corners and just a lovely little snack bar. But inside, architecturally, very interesting because it's this wonderful tiled rooms, the Laconium, which is the kind of hot rooms that they actually had in Roman <laughs> in Roman times. And then these big sort of foggy, amazing hammam steam rooms with all the original panelling and amazing. It's the 1929 building. So there's all these wonderful sculptures, kind of bronze, nudes. There are also lights. And then, you know, upstairs, this wonderful copper, coffered ceiling. And not at all something you'd find in a five-star hotel, very much a kind of convenience a kind of in the tradition of that London bathhouse but something that was very nourishing and I definitely think could see me through winter. I think it's amazing it's such a beautiful building hasn't sort of been privatized by developers and turned into some five-star spa but it is a community center and I think probably I haven't been there but I think probably 
part of the beauty of it is that it's a community center and there's all walks of life there, you know, enjoying their hammam. It doesn't feel branded and commercialized with the kind of plastic cards to kind of scan in and out and things you can book online because that is what's happened to so much Mm -hmm. of our kind of wonderful aquatic leisure infrastructure from that era. I think it's obviously just modernity and I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but I do love that lovely smiling face behind the counter, you know, just counting you in. (laughs) And gives you your towel. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, in a sense, why is that a luxury? Mm. And why have we been so bleeped in and bleeped out in so many different ways in retail, but also, you know, in pools? So it sounds like a great... Here's to the hammer and the baths. (laughs) A central theme of this autumn's edition of Confect is regimes and how they can play a central role in your happiness and well-being. In our first spa guide, Confect writers checked into restorative retreats around the world, trying out some of the different types of bathing on offer. Be it a hay bath or a herbal sauna, many spas are embracing materials from the natural world. And so today, we thought we'd explore the phenomenon of way bathing, which is seeing a resurgence in Switzerland. Earlier, I spoke to Maximilian Schnorr, founder of the Swiss clean beauty brand Lady Bell, who uses whey in his products, and Christy Pearson, an architect researching communal bathing cultures, about whey's comeback from the 18th century practice to modern day trend. I started by asking Maximilian how he first came across the power of whey. I actually was a little bit surprised when I got contacted about the topic that whey is a new beauty trend um, because I I felt a little bit we are the only ones out there. <laughs> I started this journey, I think, yeah, now eight years ago. I've been working 13 and a half years for Procter & Gamble in marketing in various positions, mainly in beauty. And at some point of time, a friend of my father, his name is Albert Koch, He is a traditional man from Appenzell, the smallest canton in Switzerland. And he came to me and said, Maximilian, you do a lot of things with beauty. I have an idea. And he basically came up to me and said that in the 18th, 19th century, a lot of Europeans came to Appenzell to bath in whey. I mean, they were not only bathing in whey, but they were also, also doing drinking cures. And he told me about this, that at that point of time in summer, they have been producing cheese on the Alps in the mountains. And then they had people who were carrying still the warm way down the mountains um, in special wooden rucksacks, I would call them. There's an up and sell term called Tansen. They still exist. And then there were Europeans from Great Britain, from Germany, from France, sitting there and taking a bath in this way and also drinking it. And he said at that point of time, people were cured by their health problems, specifically what they said at this time, overeating of um, meat, but also other foods. And also then they had some skin issues. And they found when they were doing this way cures for two, three months, they basically got rid of those problems. And I found this interesting when Albert told me this. And he said at that point of time, people didn't really really know why it was working. And he said, don't we want to do together a modern skincare line based on this whey bath tradition? And Christy, let me bring you in here, because I know that you've researched extensively this idea of the aquatic commons and communal bathing. But 
tell me about the, the significance of bathing in whey or this, in the popular imagination, the idea of bathing in milk is very indulgent. I mean, I think that there's a there's a few different images that come up when we think of whey bathing, which is less in the public imagination over the past you know century for sure than milk bathing. And the idea that milk is an is something valuable and expensive, and that one would have it as a kind of a luxury bath, of course, this gives us images of the Egyptians, milk bathing, Cleopatra and Asses milk is like, it's the most valuable thing that you, you're somehow squandering. There's a sense of squandering, I think, associated with a luxurious milk bath. Way bathing is a different image and gives us a different sense today because ecologically we recognize it is a, it's a reclaiming of a whole food product that would otherwise be wasted. So I think that the history of whey bathing is quite niche to Switzerland. Maybe Max can tell us a little bit more on that. But certainly milk bathing is something that people, the wealthy, have practiced all around the world. You certainly have the idea of Cleopatra in her bath and honey yeah. involved as well. But Max, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the origins of your brand, because obviously there's this idea of a cure. But what is it about whey that is so powerful and that has such potential? I would 100% agree with this idea that the idea of milk bathing is something very indulgent, while the idea of whey bathing is something more a cure for health reasons, which is already by the by the smell of the whey, which is not as soft, I would be describing it as milk, something which you don't enjoy to the, the extent of milk bathing. Also drinking whey is not for everyone, I would be saying. If you're not really convinced that it does something good for your health, I I would be saying you, you wouldn't be doing it. So, and, and this ecological factor which comes into place is something that inspired me because when I heard about this idea from from Albert I said people are looking everywhere to promote their skin health and if we can combine this with an idea that creates some kind of a circular economy and which is sustainable so we're using I always call it byproduct of the cheese production and if we can use this and upcycle it as a you know valuable skincare ingredient that was my motivation so to say that we have a upcycling ingredient which has a lot of powerful benefits for the skin. And Christy I mean it's interesting to look at bathing throughout the ages and how things fall into fashion and then out again or if you look across to somewhere like Istanbul where the hammam is still part of a weekly or even a daily ritual for people there's a timelessness that you find when it comes to communal bathing have you seen any patterns and do you think there's a there's any hope for the future of way bathing <laughs> in modern culture well, what I can say definitely is, uh, first of all, I agree with you strongly that fashion plays a big role in communal bathing traditions, uh, as well as, of course, this more, what, what I see you doing, Max, is focusing on wellness and beauty. Uh, I see that as part of a 
bigger picture of bathing practices and bathing traditions. And I think within that larger whole, there are fashions in how people get together, what people do, what their rituals are, what what elements they bring to the bath. Is it water? Is it heat? Is it sweat? Is it minerals? Is it organic material, which which way is? And And within that, I would say there's been a tremendous renaissance in attention to both the body and to new forms of community building that we see in bathing architecture. And for this reason, I would say that now and for the for the past decade or so it is really the time for bathing traditions to be reexamined reinvented and and the imagination and the appetite that people have for these things is great right now and i think that's really exciting so i see a lot i see a lot going on all over the world and Christy, just finally i mean you're talking about this notion of the body this idea of collective bathing is is such a powerful narrative in our history of as as humans you even see you know wonderful scenes of the kind of orangutans <laughs> in those big sort of hot tubs of, in the mountains there's a sense of like this is something that human beings are drawn to i wonder whether you think that there is a kind of real revival of this, not just a kind of Lido culture or a sense of um, swimming and, and that bathing, but really, you know, the spa, the idea that this isn't a luxury, this is a necessity and something that really is not necessarily even a cure, but it's a lifestyle in Northern Europe, but also in the US. Do you see shifts happening in that kind of perspective? I just want to focus here on one particular quality that I think that some of the public bathing culture um, misses. It's the specificity of place and regional waters, regional minerals, in this case, farming practices. It's all linked to agriculture. This idea that the soil and the earth and the water of a very specific place has something unique about it that cannot be easily globalized or made generic. And this is something that bathing culture has always contained, but now I think people are starting to recognize it more. And these spas that have fallen out of favor mineral springs. For example, Baden, Switzerland is a town that I was in pretty recently. The unique qualities of the waters in Baden are what drew people there in the first place to to them. And I think that that is something that people are more and more attuned with now, whether they're interested in food and wines of a region. I think there's uh, there's an extended awareness growing that specificity of place, specificity of practices of that place are not easily translatable or relatable. You have to go there to experience them. And I think that's something that what you, the way bathing world is touching on here. You're, you're part of a real regional phenomena. And I think that the public has more and more of an appreciation for that. Author and architect Christy Pearson and Lady Bell founder Maximilian Schnorr there. As part of this year's Shoreditch Design Triangle, bespoke timber flooring company Solid Floor collaborated with East London designers on a unique project. 
Each artist was given a brief to create a new object from waste timber with diverse and beautiful results. Our contributor, Mariella Bevan, went to Solid Floor's East London exhibition to learn more. So this is the fourth year that we're part of the Shoreditch Design Triangle. We always try to do something different that's of interest to interior designers and architects. So really we tried to get a group of people together who could show what you could do with the timber and use it for different objects. And I haven't given them any briefs, so you know they, they have actually all come up with very, very different things. Solid Floors' Katrine took me on a tour of the exhibition. As we walk through the space, timber offcuts are brought to life in the form of tables, chairs, plant stands and mobiles. To the left of the entrance, the mobiles feature delicate shapes of wood hanging from thin metal arms. Directly ahead, solid planks form the seat of a bench, held up by large white blocks of pulp. Each designer was given the same broad instruction. Use solid floors waste timber to create a novel object. Coming from a variety of different specialties, each designer brought their own creative approach and expertise to the project. We actually want people to continue to use it within their craft, so they need to come up with a way that they can use it, not just for this exhibition, but also for the future. So that's why I was very keen to keep it really, really fluid. And as you can see, there are so many different objects. Rezan from Studio Sahil is a glass worker, so she has combined glass and timber in these tables and it's totally different from what Corey Williams has done with her mobiles. Before their collaboration with Solid Floor, each designer had varying degrees of experience with using wood in their work. For Razan Hazoglu, this project involved a different kind of woodwork than she was used to. Squares of Razan's stunning speckled glass are embedded within the wooden table, showcasing the beautiful timber whilst also highlighting her glasswork. So the most wood I've used previously was solid wood, as we know, timber, cherry, maple, walnut and oak. And oak has an open grain and the solid floor wood has the plywood qualities with an oak finish on top. So the challenge for me was how do I do a joinery that's elegant and strong, but still keep the open grain texture of the oak and keep it smooth. Solid floor already has the grooves from the flooring and that makes the gluing part really easy. And then I was able to just focus on like creating a nice surface finish at the end. Furniture designer Christoph Kurzman was able to create objects out of his comfort zone whilst using a medium he works with on a regular basis. He used solid floors timber offcuts to create plant stands in different sizes and poses. I'm quite familiar with, with the material, working with plywood. What I found really nice about the material is that it had both. You had the solid wood top and then the plywood under layer. So in my case, for the, the round discs that I have at the top, I think it makes quite a nice detail to see all those various layers going around in circles. So it's about, I think what we all did was kind of really embrace the material that we worked with. Katrine talked me through some of the more collaborative works on display. So Ella is a multidisciplinary designer and Ella uses a lot of different materials. Blake makes objects from pulp and Ella has exhibited for us before with her textiles, so it had nothing to do with timber. So she brought Blake in because they had been designing these bridge 
benches. For Ella and Blake, it was their collaboration that enabled them to create their piece. When I was working on it with the colleague who was helping me make that, he was saying, should we balance it out? And as in remove the groove. And I was like, no, no, we must keep that because that does, A, keep the planks balanced, but I, I need that challenge. Quite literally a bit of salvaged rod just fitted beautifully, so that felt magic. For my creativity, a lot of it is about not chance, but the moments that the conversations one can have and then how things happen. And it's felt like a really lovely coming together for Blake and I with this piece. One thing that the designers had in common, despite the differences in their background and approach to design, is an interest in repurposing and salvaging materials. Ella and Blake didn't just use the waste timber. They went even further when creating their bench. The challenge was that my approach previously was that I was working with waste paint on the bench, which was on a reclaimed Oroco. But here we were like, well, we've got to celebrate solid floor. I can't be covering that. So that was my nice challenge. We looked at recreating a bench that we had been working on for a bit. And so a lot of the work that I do tends to use reusing a paper. So it's a lot of like newspaper, a lot of times because newspaper will be at the end cycle of its, of its use. For this project, we wanted to use all the waste that was here. So we used, basically used the office waste paper to make the bench. For Azan, reducing energy use was at the forefront of her mind. Most of the products I produce is glass and glass workshops tend to use a lot of energy. So I was lucky to find a glass workshop who already uses renewable, sustainable energy in the UK. And when I was making the tables, even the dust from the woodcuts have been used in the glue process. So that was something I was constantly thinking about. What's the maximum I can use while making these objects? Christoph found inspiration in the contrast between nature and man-made waste when creating his plant stands. I really like the idea of making some plant stands from a waste material because there's this contrast between waste and then nature. There's this catchphrase, I think, which is used a lot in terms of sustainability, which is to dread lightly. So I wanted to create something that, well, I thought a walking plant stand would be something that could be quite fun to make. So I ended up with a range of plant stands in different sizes, doing different poses. One is sitting down, one is walking, one is doing yoga. As some people think it's standing like quite sassy or some people also said they are is um, about to dance so I think the idea of treading lightly and giving back to the natural world was my inspiration behind plant stands. Christoph is also part of a collective called Burniture who brought their Rohan chair to the exhibition. Um, the Rohan chair from a collective called Burniture they focus on making furniture from recycled or waste materials, so they only use waste materials. So this chair is completely, you can just take this part, and he actually, he walked in the door just with a pile of timber under his arms, and I thought, like, he's brought the timber back, but no, it's kind of like a completely, a chair that totally comes apart and is very easily put together again. As a result of this project, Solid Floor hoped to continue forging relationships with designers, building community and a sustainable future. It was very interesting that each designer had their own approach and it's the same material but you see in very different scales, very different ways of combination and I think it's creatively 
a very interesting collaboration, but also see people in London doing lots of different things. And it makes me hopeful that the design industry in London has a nice potential ahead. Thanks, Mariella Bevan, for bringing that event to life. Gillian, I love the idea that Solifloor gave artists a challenge to reuse a material that they have otherwise just written off. Do you have anything made of unusual material? Well, I do, actually. I cherish. I was given from the Czech Republic a beautiful, beautiful strand of beads. And they're recycled beads. The area where my mother was born is called Jablonets, and it's known for the jewellery industry and bead making. And it's a relatively new company have decided that they should focus on recycled beads. And so from glasses and jars and all different recycled glass, they make these beautiful, beautiful poetic beads, which make for gorgeous jewellery. So I cherish my necklace. And Marcella, what about you? My favorite recycling project comes from fashion, from the Swiss-Japanese designer Kazu Hugler. It's amazing. She creates new beautiful garments from vintage kimonos. And she has a whole collection that she calls Tan, which means a roll of fabric in Japanese. And this is, I think, a beautiful way of reuse materials. They're beautiful garments and also somehow so modern even though the fabric is so antique. Yeah, kimono is uh, quite timeless because there's an exhibition going on which started, I think, two years ago in London at the Victoria and Albert Museum, now in Rietberg Museum Zurich, and it shows, like, over many hundreds of years, the shape of a kimono actually didn't change. It's always the same. The materials change, the stitching, whatever, but the form stays forever, and it seems timeless. One of my most favourite discoveries is a brand reusing shirts, vintage shirts. It's called En Vrac and it's from Paris. But actually these shirts are sort of starched up and then painted mm. by artists. So you have this sense that you know, you've got a vintage garment, but then it's also a piece of art. But it has this freshness somehow when it's reimagined. Mm. And I think it just shows you the potential of every garment. I mean, I have you know, so many hundreds of beautiful things that are vintage that I wear every day. Some of my favourite pieces are essentially recycled. And I think that I don't really discriminate against them for not being new. (laughs) I love the idea of a fresh hand taking something old and then giving it new life and interpreting it in an individual way. Certainly because a lot of the shirts look like they're from the corporate world, you know, (laughs) or the sort of like businessmen's shirts from the 50s when they were beautifully made. And some of them are still incredible conditions amazing cotton there's absolutely no reason why they wouldn't mm. be current but they wouldn't be worn by a, you know someone down at the Elysee Palace these days <laughs> they a new cut and a like a, a little modern... quirkiness to it exactly Marcella we featured Kilometre Paris in Confet recently which is another brand using amazing embroidery to reimagine antique garments they are absolutely fantastic. I love them. And, you know, each shirt has his soul, has his uniqueness. And this is also very special. It's really a one-of-a-kind piece. Islands of Greece have long been the backdrop of idyllic getaways. But while the glittering waters of the Cycladics continue to hog the limelight, 
a jewel on Greece's mainland, patiently shines. The mountain of Pelion. Hotelier Jill Sleeman cottoned on to the beauty of the region almost four decades ago, leaving the mass tourism of Rhodes for Pelion's calm, verdant magic. She opened her hotel, the Old Silk Store, shortly after and has never looked back. While winding up the Greek coastline, Confect's Paige Reynolds caught a glimpse of the region's magic and stopped in at the Old Silk Store to ask Jill about what makes Pelion and her hotel so special. The mountainous peninsula of Pelion is a postcard-perfect collection of villages and hidden coves that stretches between the Pagasetic Gulf and the Aegean Sea. For decades, it has welcomed travellers on more of an if-you-know-you-know kind of arrangement, unlike the country's infamous archipelagos. Hiking through its lush hills or stretched out like a happy cat on its deserted, pebbled beaches, it comes as little surprise that its visitors want to keep it a secret. But Pelion certainly does not exist in obscurity. Remember that low-budget indie film, Mamma Mia? In the search for a Greek location that had conserved its old-school charm, the film's producers landed on Damukhari, one of Pelion's charming port villages. The infamous Dancing Queen scene was filmed there with every village inhabitant they could find drafted in as an extra. Yet, although Pelion's Hollywood debut certainly raised its profile, its rustic tranquility endures something which hotelier Jill Sleeman, an inhabitant of the region's village of Moresi for more than 36 years, is very glad for. On a mild autumn day, she tells me the story of the intimate bed and breakfast she's created and the grand neoclassical building it inhabits. The hotel is called the Old Silk Store. Um, the house is about 170 years old. It's a new classical building which was most probably based on the architecture from the time when the Greeks left this village to go to work in Alexandria in Egypt and they came back with a lot of money and were able to build these very grand summer houses um, with a lot of use of um, marble for the steps and for the balconies and built in a particular style with the rooms very high and the name, the old silk store, I gave to the house because at one time in this village people had a tradition of keeping silkworms and they grew the cocoons here and the silk was sent down to Anna Lohonia in the lower side of the mountain and there was a silk factory also in Volos. Indeed, the building's grand facade, lilac-blue shutters and light-filled rooms tell the tale of the riches of another time. Pillion as a place consists of um, several villages scattered over the mountain. Most of the houses are detached and large and the community is very spread out within the village and the flagstone village squares were built at a time when Greece was under Turkish rule and these pillion villages flourished because they weren't taxed by the Turks. Um, so this is why we have these very grand village meeting places and it's surrounded by lush vegetation, most probably the most vegetated place in Greece. We have lots of flowers that are typical of 
northern Europe as well. We've got hydrangeas here, camellias, um, roses, and these flourish here and grow most probably about three times the size that they would in England, for example. So we've got this unique landscape which is got full of trees, cherry trees, pear trees, plum trees, apple trees, chestnut trees, olives, lemons, oranges and many more. After a quick tour around the old silk store's fittingly lush courtyard, we head inside up the marble staircase, but not before we take in the view. We're looking at the Aegean Sea and we're actually looking straight across from here at Halkidiki. In the morning when the sun rises you can actually see Mount Athos. Okay, so we're coming in now through these two big blue doors. So when, when you were kind of decorating the space and getting it ready for guests, what, what were your kind of main considerations? I was concerned that I wanted to keep the oldest features of the house, the traditional features. I didn't want to spoil them. I wanted to hold on to everything that I possibly could, not to disturb the balance of the building. So most of the doors are original, the floor is original. I've had to make some changes with the windows, etc. Um, but I wanted to keep it in its traditional way as much as I could. And it's just, it's just got these beautiful high ceilings as well. There's so much light that comes through here. There's so much light that comes through. And I think this is one of the reasons that the house was most probably used to keep silkworms at the time. The silkworms need a lot of light and air. So I think this building on this level was ideal for that with its large windows, lots of light, lots of air, which I think is essential to the survival of the silkworms and of course the mulberry trees that are found in Morrissey as well. Despite its idyllic qualities, it's not always been plain sailing for those making their way in the tourism industry in a remote and lesser-known part of Greece. It's been very difficult since 2008, since we went into recession. It became difficult for us then, but we managed somehow. But with coronavirus, this has had a really bad effect on us and um, we're struggling to recover from that. People, I think, have lost the normal routine of their lives, what they did with their holidays, etc. And they're not back on track with what they normally used to do. Because Pillion is not very well known, it's only sort of like the more adventurous traveler, I think, that finds his way here. There is an airport just outside Folos, but generally access is quite difficult, and I think that puts a lot of people off. But once they've come here to visit, Pillion has a magical spell on people, I think, and they usually always do return at some stage. As a stop on a longer road trip, I spent less than 24 hours soaking it all in, but I'm already planning my return. As Jill rightly states, there's just something about it. The trees come right down to the sea, which is beautiful because you can sometimes find natural shade under the trees at the beach, you know, if you're there early enough. And at this time of year now, there are not so many people around, so you can have the beach almost to yourselves. 
this area is really for nature lovers, for people who love um, nature and respect nature, excellent for hikers, excellent beaches as well, and to be prepared to visit a very rural part of Greece. We don't have many things here, we don't have many shops. We're not very commercialised which I think is part of the magic. Exactly, part of the magic. So, um, you know, we're a bit low-key. We're most probably like about 30, 40 years behind, which is all part of the charm. For Comfort Corner in Pelion, I'm Paige Reynolds. Thanks, Paige. You're listening to Comfort Corner. And now it's time for our final thought. This month, the Nairobi-based journalist and curator Wanjiri Gakuru muses on the joys of riding a bike, the ultimate in personal transport, whether that's people carrier or cargo, and the liberation that comes with being on two wheels. Let's have a listen. I finally mastered the art of carrying my Japanese leisure bicycle down the four flights of stairs of the apartment block where I live in Nairobi. A black and silver steed, I christened her Nzega and have fallen into the habit of referring to her by name rather than by meek. I'll zigzag in the parking area that surrounds my block long before there are speeding cars around to avoid or playing children to worry about. I have no such concerns when I head out to Karura, a lush 1,040-hectare urban forest on the outskirts of the city. Almost lost to land-grabbing developers in 1998, it took the brave intervention of Professor Wangari Mathai to prevent its destruction. She became a Nobel laureate for her conservation work six years later. There is immeasurable delight in cycling and taking in fresh air dappled in woody scents. The soil is camel brown beneath my tires. Dense clumps of indigenous bush, shrubs and trees flank the broad pathways. The tapestry ranges from chartreuse to olive. Fallen leaves, small and spindly, dry into crunchy greyish-green spears. Colors seem to sharpen, take deeper hues here. Birds chirp and insects buzz in a soothing medley. On a bike, I am flying, joyfully taking it all in. It isn't easy to replicate the safety and comfort that Karura offers on Kenya's open roads. There aren't enough bike lanes and other infrastructural support to make cycling a viable and safe mode of transport. This is true right across Africa, where more folks actually walk than cycle or drive. Those who do dare to venture out on two wheels tend to come in two varieties in Nairobi. The casually dressed blue-collar worker or the kitted-out speed biker. Both possess a silly resolve. They expertly weave around traffic, seemingly unafraid of the engine-powered machines around them. On a recent visit to Thika, 
a small town that's about 50 kilometers outside Nairobi, I was delighted to find that commercial bike taxis were still operating. They hark back to a time in the 1970s when it is said that a Ugandan man traded a cow for a bicycle and pioneered a pedal-powered taxi business between two nations. He ferried travelers over the no-man's land to Busia, a border town between Uganda and Kenya. This service quickly grew in popularity and gave rise to the phrase Boda Boda to hail the big-wheeled commercial rally bicycles with padded seats and decorative fringe that plied the dusty route. They were eventually overshadowed by motorcycles in the early 2000s, but these new taxis retained the moniker. It was good to see the transporters in Thika carry on the old tradition right down to the beloved Kichibek aesthetics. As I test my legs up a steady incline in Karura, I think of these stalwarts and their counterparts in far-flung corners of the country. I remember the village women in Kisumu near Lake Victoria on their family-owned railways who refused to kowtow to the sexist claims of spoiling men's food by cycling. I feel the burn in my thighs and seek to draw strength from the short-haired woman in Zega Mjini a small word in Tanzania, who rode past me with a baby tied to her back and two 20-litre jerry cans of water strapped to her bicycle. This, in case you hadn't guessed, is where the name of my bike comes from. I think of a cold evening in Berlin, cutting across town on a red mamachari. It was a triumphant two-woman operation. I must admit, occasionally on my trips to Karura, I get off my bike and walk when the hills get too steep. My Inzega has no gears, no suspension, and her handlebars curve backwards like the ears of a nervous cat. She is built for comfort, not for speed, or extended stretches on precipitous maram roads. Still, I would trade her for nothing. My Nzega is an elegant second-hand purchase made six years ago on an unscheduled pit stop during a road trip around Greater East Africa. A marvelous trip through Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda and the DRC that revealed to me the expanding circumferences of possibility that this area of the world has to offer. When I reach the top of the hill and my rugged breath has eased, I'm glad to have seen it at all. But I'm even happier to have gotten there by bike. That was journalist Wanjiri Gakuru. Marcella, can you relate to what Wanjiri says about cycling and the liberation that comes with it? Oh, Vanjeri is talking right from my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know that. In Zurich, where I live, I'm cycling since ever. It makes me feel just completely independent. I can choose the most beautiful way and I can park right in front of the entrance of a building. That's fantastic. Don't you think so? I do. I mean, I feel that cycling is like flying. It's such a wonderful feeling. 
and the wind mm. just whistling in your hair. And I mean, I just love cycling so much, especially downhills. <laughs> Uphills, slightly different. But I had such fun commissioning this because I've travelled in Africa quite a bit and I went to this amazing place called Tamale in Ghana, in fact, and it was just filled with incredible cycle lanes. More cycle lanes you'd see in Copenhagen, hmm. in this quite amazing place near Togo. And I was talking to her about it. She's been there as well. And she was telling me about the courage that it takes women to cycle in that context, but in a place that isn't so traditionally cycle friendly. And then we just talked and talked about the feeling of cycling and how it differs in the context to do with gender, to do with geography. And she wrote this piece and I'm very fond of it for those reasons. I was amazing fond of it because I just now have such an emotional connection to my bike because I do think you experience the world differently on a bike. And I was a very, very timid city biker. And it was really the pandemic that got me out there. And I was biking further afield. And I do find there's a line in that piece where she says, that, you know, the colors are brighter and more vivid. And I think it's true. Biking through Hyde Park yesterday and the greens were just phenomenal and the shade and the, the shades of shade. And I definitely observe the world differently when I'm on a bike. And there's an enormous sense of joy and freedom. I absolutely adore it. Do you actually name your bike like she does? Because well, she, <laughs> she's anthropomorphized her bike. I love my little red car so much because my little red convertible mini is called Little Red. And so my bike's Littler Red because I have this red theme going. But I just adore my bike. I love it. Well, that brings us to the very end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias and to Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Isabella Jewell and edited by Christy O'Grady. If you have a story, suggestion or simply want to say hi, you can reach the team at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.